there is no statute of limitations on learning to read. There is a, there is a, a window of opportunity that affects fluency. So if you don't learn to read until fifth grade and you have that, aha, now it all pulls together, your peers that you're being compared to with fluency, how quickly and accurately you read, they've had five years of, of uh, head start. It's almost like you started the race five years behind them. So there is a window of opportunity for fluency, but there's no statute of limitations of learning to read. Parents and educators alike are increasingly concerned about reading proficiency in the wake of the pandemic. According to a recent study by Amplify, only 55% of third graders in the U.S. are on track for developing critical reading skills with at least 30% in need of intensive intervention. What factors are most important in teaching a child to read? And what are best practices for instruction? How can we support each child's learning needs to ensure they get on and stay on a path to reading success? Oh, and what exactly is the science of reading? This is what I want to know. And today I'm joined by Dr. David Kilpatrick to find out. David Kilpatrick is a professor of psychology at SUNY Cortland and an expert in assessing reading difficulties. He worked with schools in Syracuse as a school psychologist for 27 years and is the author of two books relating to understanding and teaching reading. Today, he joins us to discuss how students learn to read and what educators can do to help children of all backgrounds become successful readers. David, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I mentioned special attention, David, because this is really uh, an important set of shows we're putting together that is that has a particular focus on reading and the reading challenges that we see that exist in, in today's schools. But before we get there, I wanted to talk a little bit about your background because you're a psychology uh, by training and a psychologist. So talk a little bit about how you uh, migrated to that area uh, and, and what drew your interest to the field of psychology? Yes, I'm a certified school psychologist in New York State and got my doctorate in psychology from Syracuse University. I worked for 28 years in schools. I've also taught at the university level for 28 years. Just so you know, those two overlapped. I'm not 82, yes. if you do the math. <laughs> yeah, okay. They overlapped by 22 years. So I've had a foot in both worlds for a long, long time. Uh, for the last five or six years, I've just been at the university level. So early on in my career, it became clear that the two most common referral factors were reading problems and ADHD. So those became both of great interest for me. We had to do evaluations and consultations and behavioral, put together behavioral plans for a wide variety of disabilities. But far and away, the two most common had to do with reading problems and more specifically word level reading problems. In other mm. words, if you read something to the child, they would get it much of the time, but they didn't have good reading comprehension because they weren't good at reading the words. And then the other was attention problems, which obviously is not our topic today, but it's still a very, a very common issue. We now see, you know, particularly uh, post pandemic, if we can really say we're post-pandemic, but post-pandemic, we can see that the issue of, of children's mental health, you mentioned ADHD, all these things that impact children's mental well-being um, is becoming more pronounced. Uh, we've had shows where people talk about, 
you know, the the uh, advantages and challenges associated with technology and the lack of brain development because kids, you know, or have a, a, a computer in front of them or a PDA in front of them. They, they, all these things are contributing to some of these mental health challenges. And in the school psychology field, as I understand it, not just in New York, but around the country, we need more people. So uh, how did we get there in terms of the reading deficits we see? And then we can talk a little bit about some of the things you've unearthed in your research and, and some of the uh, approaches that you've undertaken. And so my focus has been on word level reading. And some estimates have that somewhere in the range of 80 percent of children with some special education diagnosis, if we went well, or we will call it a classification. Diagnosis is kind of a popular term we'd use out in general public or use in medicine. But we'd say a classification or categorization under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, IDEA mm -hmm. or our idea. Uh, about 80% to 85% of those kids have word level reading problems. It's far and away the most common issue that that kids face that would require some kind of special educational help. So that that's really why that uh, more or less became my focus. And, and what is word level? What, what is word level reading deficit? What does that mean? It means that your ability to read the words off the page are not sufficient enough to kind of work into the background so all your focus can be on comprehension. Got if it. you're a good reader and you're reading words, they jump off the page at you. You're not paying attention to the details of that word. You're not sounding them out. You're not guessing. They're, it's there. And so if somehow your ability to do that is, is compromised, and there, it's not an all or nothing thing. It falls on a fine continuum from mild to severe. And if you have a problem in that area to the point where it affects your comprehension, then um, that's the whole point of reading is comprehension. And, and that that's uh, the word level reading is a, is a big part of that. I hope you're enjoying this episode of What I Want to Know, one of the most downloaded K through 12 education podcasts in the country. Make sure you don't miss any of these important topics. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast or social media platform. And leave a rating and review so we can bring you more of the topics you want to hear about. Now back to the conversation. C can I ask you this though? Um, how much of that, that word level problem or, or, or challenge, how much of that relates to the environment in which a child is brought up? And in, in sort of the, you know, they say that if you if you grow up in poverty, you miss out on thousands of words before you're in a kindergarten. How much of that comes into play? Uh, it does. Uh, so it's it's been very easy for us when it comes to anything in life in general or in the sciences. It's so easy for us to want to pick out a cause. Poli <laughs> politics, that's what it's all about, right? Either side of the aisle, they know exactly what the cause is, and it has something to do with the other side, right, of, of any problem. So um, it, it's very complex. There is a very strong, and nobody should be a, a scared of this, what I'm about to say, but we have a very strong body of research, hundreds of studies to show that there's an, a, a very significant genetic component to word-level reading. Now, because there's a genetic component, people become afraid of that because when we think of genetics and our, our everyday simplicity, we think of eye color, hair color, skin color, height, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but or maybe a certain uh, what you know 
uh, other features like that, you know, does your tongue curl, <laughs> you know, do you have a nape at the back of your neck? Those kind of things you learn in sixth grade. Right. But those are pretty much localized to very few or even singular genes. When it comes to more sophisticated behaviors like attention that has a strong genetic component or reading, it's across a whole multitude of genes, uh, some of which they're kind of getting close to pinning down, some of which they're not. And sometimes they get pinned down and then they find out later, oh no, it wasn't. Anyway, I'm not going to get into that whole area. But the reality is there's a strong, we know there's a strong genetic component, but we also know that there's a strong environmental component. Mm. The underlying problem with word level reading, one of the most significant findings in the last 40 to 50 years is what's referred to as the phonological core deficit, phonological hyphen core. So that's one word together as an adjective deficit. And the phonological core deficit says that the phonology of language is in some level compromised for these individuals, and it makes it hard to read. Now, I have to step back a little bit and say phonology has to do with the sounds of spoken language as opposed to just general auditory sounds, you know, environmental sounds we hear. Mm -hmm. But we also have sounds related to our speech, both in terms of producing speech, but also perceiving speech. And as it turns out, the phonological core deficit does not seem to have an impact on, for the most part, on general language development or ability to process someone else speaking. Uh, there is a greater percentage of individuals that are slow in terms of developing language uh, that more likely, and keys are more likely, this is not a, you know, not a hard, hard wire type thing or uh, hard connection, mm -hmm. but the, the greater likelihood of having later reading problems. And when you found out that a lot of the school systems were not doing that, then you decided to to take some of this into your own hands, if you talk about that migration and what you ended up doing as we move into what you've called the science of reading. Well, a couple of things. First of all, I don't refer to it as the science of reading. That's kind of a name that's been <laughs> attached to it. When I hear the term science of reading, I think of a book from 2005 called The Science of Reading by yeah. Snowling and Hume, two researchers, and it's filled with essays by top researchers from around the country. And it just got... Uh, updated in 2022. Yes. So that's the science of reading to researchers. They're thinking of that book, that volume. Uh, but what we normally would say is research, scientific research on reading. And then, of course, the quote unquote science of reading is the efforts to try to get some of that information into classroom. But at the end of the day, we've got a problem out here that needs to be addressed. And there's a disconnect between what the research shows and how we're applying it in everyday classrooms. So, and I appreciate the fact that you even pointed out that a lot of the research out there has no practical application when it comes to making sure that our kids, whatever deficits they have is being addressed. So I really wanna get to what you've seen out there, understanding that it's not your research, understanding that, you know, you're, you're the disc jockey. But talk to me about the playlist that parents can count on as a DJ that will help them get better results with their kids' ability to read. Um, I really tore into this. And one of the first things I learned about was something that is that the developer of this now calls orthographic mapping. Orthographic mapping is the process we use to remember words. Now think about this for a minute, and this is a challenge I put out to literally thousands of people over the last few years. 
when we're reading and we encountered a new word, whether it was in second grade, third grade, fifth grade, ninth grade, or two weeks ago, if it's a brand new word you've never seen before, you use what skills you have, usually sounding it out. Maybe you need to use context as a backup. And once you know the word, you don't run and get flashcards. You don't cover it up and study it. Once you figure out a new word in a passage all those years, you move on because you're reading for comprehension. And we've built up tens of thousands of words in our long-term memory, and we don't even remember how we did it. It just happened. I think that calls out for a scientific explanation, and I believe we have it. So Dr. Linnea Airy, who's now retired down at City University of New York, Uh, She came up with a theory back in the early 80s and tested it out for years. And uh, the very first time people independently tested out her theory. So getting back to your question, everybody's looking for what's the teaching technique that I can use with these kids? I totally understand. My wife and I have been having this ongoing problem with our three-year-old dishwasher. Dishwasher should last more than three years. And three different times I've taken that thing apart with limited knowledge I just want to know how to get the dishwasher to work. I don't need a whole course on, uh, you know, small appliance repair. I don't need that, right? But teachers need to become small appliance repair people. It's not just about the specific technique. I need a specific technique to get that dishwasher to do what it needs to do, right? And that's fine, and I'll move on. But teachers need to be the small appliance repair. So they need to understand more than just what the technique is to get something to work. Now, here's the problem. When people hear of, quote unquote, the science of reading, they think we're talking about some large cache of 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 studies that compare this technique and that technique, et cetera, et cetera. We don't have that. We have very little of specific techniques. Almost all the research studies use whole approaches. So say a phonics approach versus say a whole language approach. Now the phonics approach, you could compare, there are different phonics approaches that use very different techniques from one another with very little overlap. And you can, and whole language can vary dramatically from one classroom to the next that they're studying as a comparison group. So it's not about the techniques. It's about the idea of what skills need to be developed. What are the mm. skills that need to be developed? And phonics programs develop one of the most important skills kids need to read, and that is code knowledge. The letters on the page are not random. It's not like in our language, hat is spelled Q-R-Z and pat is spelled M-W-W. You know, they're not random. There's a, there's a, a rhyme or reason to the spelling pattern and how it connects up with our language. Now, English happens to be the most inconsistent of all the alphabetic languages, Thank, thankfully for everybody else's benefit. But, um, However, it's still an alphabetic, and it's still designed to represent those individual sounds, those individual phonemes in our speech stream. So phonics helps develop that first skill. But what phonics doesn't do directly particularly for struggling readers, is get them to remember those words. And that's where Aries theory comes in, in terms of understanding that process. So there's two different levels or components of word reading. Number one, to accurately and efficiently identify a new and unfamiliar word. Think of all the words you and I know. Mm -hmm. Individuals our age, I see you got a little gray there, I got gray here, and and Mm -hmm. we're both very, you know, we read a lot. So we have somewhere in the range of 40 to 60,000 words tucked away in our long-term memory. How many did our teachers teach us? A tiny fraction of that, maybe maybe a thousand words. 
I'll even shoot the, to the fences and say 2,000 words. Who taught us the other 48,000 words? We taught ourselves. We encountered it. We sounded it out correctly. And then it kind of magically, and it's not magic, but it feels that way, goes into our long-term memory. So when we see it again, it jumps out at us immediately. So Aerie goes from being able to identify a word, how we then remember that word. And none of the four classic approaches to teaching reading, phonics, linguistic, whole word, and whole language, none of them provides uh, uh, an accurate answer to that question of how we remember words. How do we bring this together and, and figure out ways to minimize or limit what I would call, you know, the superficial debates? I mean, if we're talking about how the best way to help kids get to where they need to be in terms of reading, word knowledge, acquisition, knowledge, understanding, what have you, then some of these debates that we see every day they're not coming close to solving the problem. Right, because we're not working backward from how reading works. We're working forward from how it, we have, maybe how we were trained in our undergraduate program or how we, the, the, the time investment we, play, we put into a particular approach. I had to make a major change in my viewpoint when I first started reading this stuff. I had some ideas about reading that were not correct at all. And um, I had to make that change. And that's hard. If we were to line up all the different, the four classic approaches, phonics, linguistics, whole word, whole language, the first two are code-based, meaning they focus on the code, the letters and sounds. The second two are meaning-based, where the letters and sounds are kind of peripheral and you might need to muddy yourself in those dirty waters a little bit. But for the most part, we want to go right for meaning. It's like you have to build up to that. And so the, the meaning-based approaches want to go right for the juggler. They want to go right for meaning. They don't want to get into all this other, you know, level letters and sounds type of thing. So each one of those tells you what skills are needed. Each one provides an idea of what skills are needed. And if you find out that that approach is not an accurate reflection of how reading works, then maybe those aren't skills you need. For example, with the whole language approach, a huge part of it is the ability to become a good guesser by integrating multiple cues available and hints available in the text. But it turns out children who are good readers are not better guessers than children who are weak readers. That is not one of the skills needed for reading, but that's what the theory tells us is, need, is needed. So, we, so the phonics approach uh, takes us halfway across the bridge, so to speak, for some kids all the way across the bridge, but it takes us at least halfway across the bridge because it builds on that necessary skill of being able to efficiently identify the, 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 a new and unfamiliar word by using the code. Uh, but what does it predict about how you remember words? Doesn't have much to say about that. Uh, some people that write about it say, well, once they see it enough times, they'll remember it. Okay, so how? How do they just remember it? And why is it you have so many kids that can't? They'll see it a bazillion times and they don't remember it. So that calls for another step beyond that to say, how do we remember words? And that's what Aries theory uh, is designed to explain. And it's done a very good job of doing that. Um, so uh, we need to talk about what are the skills needed. And we're not going to know what the skills are until we understand how reading works. So think of three levels, how reading works. Each one of those four approaches provides a different explanation of how reading works. So once teachers understand how reading works, understand what the skills are, I'm not going to say the techniques automatically fall in place, but they're a much better position to say, hey, this would work, and oh, no, that's not going to work. So I just have a couple more questions. One is, I, I understand and appreciate that 
teachers need to understand how to look backwards with the, in, in, in addressing the reading challenge as opposed to going forward and the various levels you talked about. But how does this play out in terms of the curriculum that school districts acquire in order to make sure, and the training associated with teaching that curriculum, how does that all play out? Well, I, I've not taken any coursework or done any reading in curriculum development, so I'm not the right person yeah. to ask. But I can talk about what are the skills kids need. So children who are skilled readers, they have, they develop those two levels of word reading or two components, being able to sound out words and the ability to remember words. And this is what seems to be the case. To be able to sound out words and identify words independently, you need to be able to know the letter. You have to have letter sound knowledge. I know that T says T. I know that P says P. And then you also have to have what's called phoneme blending. So a child, many kids uh, will do this. And teachers that have worked with kids have seen this. They look at a word like cat and go, K, A, T. And they look at you and go, what's the word? And you're like, what's the word? You just sounded it out. They have a blending problem. So that's phoneme blending. That's the two skills you need to sound out words. Now, it gets more complex than that because they learn different patterns, like the silent mm -hmm. E pattern and all that type of thing. Okay. So Aries theory is pretty well established and, and well respected in the research literature. And what she's saying is we are learning to remember words just like when you're growing up as a child and throughout our whole life. We are connecting new information to things already stored in long-term memory. What's stored in long-term memory? The pronunciation. Even if the child is not familiar with the meaning of the word, but they've heard it. So if they've, if kids hear their parent, one parent say to the other, oh, the boss was incensed when he found out whatever. Well, if the kid hears that word incensed enough times, it's in their, their phonological long-term memory. They don't, it's not in their semantic, their meaning long-term memory. So David, uh, last question. This is what I really want to know. Let's say that you're talking with a superintendent who uh, runs a mid-sized school district had a lot of reading challenges, what advice would you give them if they wanted to develop the right approach to engaging and training their teachers on how to begin this process of working backwards as opposed to working forward and addressing the reading problem that exists with their children? To answer, partly answer your question, there is no statute of limitations on learning to read. There is, a, there is a, a window of opportunity that affects fluency. So if you don't learn to read until fifth grade and you have that, aha, now it all pulls together, your peers that you're being compared to with fluency, how quickly and accurately you read, they've had five years of, of uh, head start. It's almost like you started the race five years behind them. So there is yeah. a window of opportunity for fluency, but there's no statute of limitations of learning to read. So what I'm saying applies across all grade levels. And that is we need to say, what are the skills kids need to be good readers? And what we've done now for the last 35 years is we've said skilled readers are kids who are skilled guessers, and you have to teach them to use these techniques. And the scary part is those techniques of trying to figure it out are the kind of things that struggling readers readers naturally do when they're not good at sounding out words and they're not good at remembering words. What's left? Use all those different cues to figure things out. So there's a sense, and this sounds pretty pretty unfortunate, but there's a real strong sense in which the way we've taught reading is to get kids to try to function the way weak readers naturally function instead of the way skilled readers naturally function. And children that have the good phonology, 
they, in a sense, abandon those techniques and they become excellent at phonics and the phonemic awareness. They develop those skills without being taught them because they were blessed with enough of that. And then we have a huge equity issue. The equity issue is when you are you have parents that have money and you're in third grade and you're struggling. What do you do? You pay the hundreds or thousands of dollars for the child to be tutored and get what they did not get. If you don't have that, what happens? You continue to struggle and that does not get itself corrected. The good news is the you know the the uh, Queen Mary is that right one of the big ships right it's starting mm-hmm, yes. to turn around it's starting to turn around so you have state departments of education saying we know there's an issue here we've been hearing all the excuses as to why these kids aren't reading and and we're not buying anymore we know it has something to do with the instruction so uh, uh, there are organizations that have started up, Decoding Dyslexia, the Reading League has started up recently. And as a result of these efforts by a lot of different people, we're slowly starting to turn things around. Uh, we're, we're far off uh, because the approaches that don't work well are still the dominant approaches of teaching reading. But we are, there is a, there is a glimmer of hope ahead. Let's, let's just put it that way. Yeah, and that's very encouraging. And David Kilpatrick, I really appreciate the work you're doing. Also appreciate the conversation. I learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners and viewers will. Thanks for joining us on What I Want to Know. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to What I Want to Know. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app so you can explore other episodes and dive into our discussions on the future of education and write a review of the show. I also encourage you to join the conversation and let me know what you want to know using hashtag WIWTK on social media. That's hashtag WIWTK. For more information on Stride and online education, visit stridelearning.com. I'm your host, Kevin P. Chavis. Thank you for joining What I Want to Know.